morning all. Really good to be with you. Do you want to turn either on a device or a Bible, if you've got one, to, uh, to Matthew chapter 7? Have I managed to turn myself off again? Is this working? Every time I come, I manage to massacre the sound system. So, um, great. This one presumably still does work, doesn't it? Great. So Matthew chapter 7, let me read verses 15 to, uh, to 29. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruits, but a bad tree bears bad fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruits, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So here's my question for you this morning. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? What's he like? What's his character like? What's he like to relate to? What aspect of him stands out? When you think about Jesus, what's he like? Now, my guess is if you've kicked around churches for a while, you may have a reasonable idea in your mind. It might be that if you're fairly new to Christianity, it's a little bit more sketchy. But most of us will have a vague sense of Jesus. And yet, can I suggest, whatever your answer is, there's likely to be a problem with it. Because the temptation of human beings all through the centuries is to make Jesus in our own image. If you go to sort of old church buildings, maybe some not a million miles away from here, there'll probably be a stained glass window and a, a picture of Jesus there. And my guess is the Jesus who's there will probably look, I don't know, vaguely Anglo-Saxon, you know, quite blonde, 
quite blue-eyed, probably absolutely nothing like what Jesus actually looked like. And the reason you know, stained glass windows always look like that is because there's always this temptation. We want to make Jesus in our own image. And my guess is when it comes to thinking about Jesus' character, it's always tempting to make Jesus a kind of slightly bigger and better version of ourselves. You know, he's kind of got a similar sense of humor to me. Gets irritated by the kind of things I get irritated by. It's just a temptation, isn't it? We kind of make Jesus a slightly bigger version of ourselves. Which is why, actually, we need passages like this. It's why we need to be confronted with the real Jesus. To hear what he said when he was on earth to hear the end of this Sermon on the Mount. And if you were there at the time, and if you asked people as they were streaming down the mountain, what was the main thing that struck you about Jesus? The thing they would all say was this. They were struck by his authority. Do you notice that? That's how this section ends. Matthew tells us that the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Even in preaching this sermon, Jesus is claiming authority. He's saying, I have the right to tell you how to live. Think about it, that's pretty bold, isn't it? You know, in preaching a sermon, Jesus is saying to the crowds around him, I've got the right to tell you how you should lead your life. And that's quite some authority. Will you forgive me? I, I know I'm a visitor here this morning, but I'm going to be pretty blunt. This morning feels like one of the most serious sermons I've ever preached, actually. Because Jesus is just pretty straight. And actually, if I'm going to do my job in passing on what Jesus says, I'm going to be pretty straight as well. Because what we see in this passage is Jesus' authority... And it is a divisive authority. It's a divisive authority. You see, there are many ways in which Jesus of Nazareth is the most unifying person who's ever lived. You know, he brings together people from different nationalities, different races, different social backgrounds, different educational levels, different generations, different personalities. He's the most unifying person Whoever lives, he creates a humanity where all the barriers are broken down. He's the most unifying person who's ever lived, and he's also the most divisive. Because within each of those groups, he draws a line. He draws a line which separates people. That separates people of the same nationality and the same background. And can I be absolutely blunt... I suspect he probably draws a line through this room. And there are probably different people in this room on different sides of that line. Jesus has an authority that is fundamentally divisive. Do you see how he does that as the Sermon on the Mount draws to a close? You saw it with Peter last week. Two roads. So you have this narrow road that leads to life and a wide road that leads to destruction. And you find that same sort of division as well when you get to verse 15. 
watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And he's talking now about prophets, those who have the responsibility to speak the word of God. And what Jesus is saying is, even amongst those who, I don't know, preach, there's a line being drawn. Not everybody who stands at the front as a Christian leader is going to be on the right side of this line. There's a division there. There are those who are going to look good, who outwardly will come to you as uh, a sheep, but who inwardly are far from me. And you've got a division taking place. Actually, it's a division that's shown between two trees. You get it in verse 17. You get the good tree and the bad tree. Now, we're going to see towards the end how that division takes place. But just for the moment, notice Jesus' line of division. Even amongst the prophets, even amongst Christian leaders, even amongst those whose job it is to speak the truth. Some are going to be on the right side of the line. Some are going to be those who, verse 19, are thrown into the fire. There's a dividing line even between Christian leaders. Now, you may well know that tragically, there have been stories over the past few years in all different church groupings of Christian leaders who've been leading double lives. And to be honest, whenever you come across that, it's tragic and it makes us grieve. What it shouldn't do is make us doubt our faith in Jesus, actually. Because Jesus is the one who says that kind of thing will happen. Just because somebody stands at the front and presents as a Christian leader, you can't actually guarantee they're Christian. There are those who are going to lead this double life. And Jesus says this line of division runs even through Christian leaders. And then the dividing line, well, it runs within those who do Christian stuff. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice the implied authority, by the way. You know, Jesus knows that come the end of time, everybody is going to be gathered to him. And actually, he is the one who is going to determine where people spend eternity. Now, that's a pretty massive authority, isn't it? You know, imagine anybody, anybody else saying, hey, I'm the one who determines human destiny. You know, everybody at the end is going to give an account to me. You know, if I'd stood up and said, you've lost your mind. You can understand why the crowd are amazed at his authority, can't you? Jesus is saying, on the last day, everybody's going to come and give an account to me. And it will be a day of division. You know, what's implied is that there will be those who come to Jesus on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and he says, please enter the kingdom of heaven, welcome. But he also says that won't be the case for everybody. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Gosh, that's sobering, isn't it? There are those who've been active in church. Those who've even done seemingly miraculous things in church. And at the end of time, they're going to be on the wrong side of the line, Jesus says. Away from me. I never knew you. And this line that Jesus draws is a line that is going to separate preachers. It's a line that is going to go through churches and people who've been involved in churches. And it's a line that runs through those who hear Jesus' words. Because you get the, the last division in verses 24 to 27. And here it's all about a building project. I did history, I know nothing about architecture, but apparently foundations are quite useful in buildings. And Jesus imagines this person who goes to the work of building a house and sorts the foundations out. He builds on a rock, if you like. He, he does the back-breaking work of making sure this is a house with foundations. Uh, and then by contrast, there's those who just think, gosh, foundations? Don't really need those. That's just hard work. Hey, there's a sandy bit of ground. Let's just shove a house up. I'm sure it'll be fine. As you get two houses. And probably at one level, they look broadly similar. Until the storm comes. And when the storm lashes down and the wind is howling, yeah, the person in the house with good foundations, they're just sort of sipping their coffee and they're pretty relaxed. And the one who built their house with no foundation loses everything. I mean, you can almost feel it, can't you? Yeah, they build a house that's going to be fine and then suddenly it comes and it falls flat and they've lost everything. And Jesus is saying that, I think, is an illustration of, of what happens come this judgment day. Come the day to which history is heading, when every human being gives an account to Jesus, there will be those who sail into life, life forever, life in the kingdom, life as it's meant to be. And there will be others who lose absolutely everything. And you just feel the agony of that, don't you? All the achievements they were so proud of in this life just become absolutely nothing as they give an account to Jesus. And so you see this division that runs all the way through this section. It's there last week in Peter's passage, two roads. It's there in preachers, two trees. It's there in people who do stuff in church, appearing before Jesus, one let in, one away from me. It's there in two houses built on different foundations, one solid, lasting into life, the other lose everything. What do you make of this? Can I minister, these are either the words of a raving egomaniac or they're the most important truths in the world. They're one of those two, aren't they? 
Can, can I mean this? Jesus is not somebody who just offers some vague thoughts to reflect on or some vague suggestions. I mean, he claims to be the one who will judge everybody. He claims that reactions to his words are what determines how people will live for eternity. That's either raving egomania, or the most important truth in the world. And you've got to decide which. You see, some of us will frankly will regard Jesus' words as ideas and suggestions that we can kind of play around with. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And I think that's the option that isn't available. Or dismiss them if you want. Or take them incredibly serious. Those are the options that are available. What are you going to do with them? I'll tell you why... I'm convinced these aren't the words of a raving egomaniac, but are actually the most important words the world has ever heard. Because you see it in Jesus' character. You know, his deep compassion. His deep compassion, which would be unreconcilable with a kind of egomaniac. The love that takes him to the cross, going to Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there, deliberately pursuing the road of death. That love... That means I trust his character. The evidence for his resurrection, that means 12 defeated disciples suddenly turn into this movement that changes the world. The evidence for his resurrection, that makes me convinced he really is the son of God and he really does have this level of authority. And so when you encounter the words of Jesus, you're encountering one with deep power with deep authority, which means that these words are amongst the most serious anybody has ever spoken. You see, there is a little kind of ditty from the last century that kind of conveys the situation. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Because that is the situation facing the human race. At the moment, we get the choice. What are we going to do with the words of Jesus? One day we lose the choice, and the issue is simply going to be, what's he going to do with us? Because we encounter his authority as judge. Gosh, it's sobering, isn't it? There's a question hanging, isn't there? You see, I've said that Jesus will draw this line. You know, we've seen it all the way through the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Two roads, two trees, two destinations, two houses. There's clearly a line of division drawn. And the question becomes, on what basis? You know, on what basis is this line drawn? It really matters that we know that. Well, let's go back to the text. Let's see what Jesus actually says. So let's go back to these false prophets. How do you tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Verse 16 tells us, Jesus says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Verse 20, By their fruit you will recognize them. In other words, how do you in the end see the difference between this authentic Christian leader and this false Christian leader? It's actually by their fruit. It's by their characters, by what they end up doing. 
doesn't really matter how eloquent they are, how impressive they are. What matters actually in the end is their character. By your fruits, you will recognize them. And what about these true and false disciples? You know, those who admitted gloriously, wonderfully to the kingdom of heaven and those who are pushed out at the end of time. What's the difference? Verse 21, the one who enters the kingdom is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So here you see the dividing line again. Fruit, does the will of my Father in heaven, does God's will, lives it out, Jesus says in verse 21. Again, the last section, the, the two houses. What's the division that goes on here? What's, what's the line? Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. By contrast, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on a sand. To be honest, that's why I know this division runs even through a room like this and actually any other church. Because the division isn't between those who hear Jesus' words and those who don't hear Jesus' words. They all do. No, no, the division is, do you put Jesus' words into practice? That, that's where the division runs. And so do you see the image that Jesus is putting together? By, your, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Those who do my, the will of my Father in heaven. Those who put my words into practice. And again, by the way, just note Jesus' authority that he equates doing God's will with putting his words into practice. That's the dividing line that Jesus draws. And it matters. It matters. You see, you can see why this is an appropriate ending to the Sermon on the Mount, can't you? Because Jesus taught a whole load of stuff. Stuff about what we do with our money. Stuff about what we do with our sexuality. Stuff about how we speak. Stuff about how we pray. Stuff about our attitude towards others. And Jesus, in making this division and saying, it matters that you put my words into practice, is saying, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't for your entertainment wasn't to occupy you on a Sunday morning. It was to change your life. It was to change how you live. There is stuff you need to put into practice, and it shapes eternity. Now, some of you are inwardly screaming at me at the moment because you're saying, Andy, this is all wrong. Who let this heretic in? Don't you know we don't enter the kingdom of heaven by obeying Jesus' words? Don't we know it's all about trusting in Jesus' death on the cross? What's going on here? Because I hope you'll agree, all I've done is just pass on Jesus' words. I mean, is Jesus a bit of a heretic? What's going on here? It seems to me this is where we need to actually consider what the Sermon on the Mount actually says. Do you remember how it starts? I think you would have needed to be back here this time last year, actually, to be at the start. But do, do you know how it starts? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, actually obeying the Sermon on the Mount isn't in the end about saying, hey, Jesus, I've kept all your teaching perfectly about speech and sexuality. You know, I've, I've made it. Let me in. Huh. Ironically, even putting the Sermon on the Mount into practice will involve saying, Lord, 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 I've tried to live with you. I know you have authority over my life. And even as I try, I realize my spiritual bankruptcy. Lord, have mercy on me. Actually, to put the Sermon in the Mount into practice will involve saying, Lord, forgive me my sin. Forgive me my sin. Lord, I... I need your death for me. I need your forgiveness. And actually, as I know your forgiveness, I want to live differently in the future. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Or to go back to the Beatitudes, Lord, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need you to fill me. And Lord, as I recognize my sin, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be pure in heart. Did you see? Actually, the Sermon on the Mount drives us to the cross. It, it drives us to say, Lord, I, I do need your death. I need your forgiveness. And I need your strength because I do want to live differently. I do want to live for you. So as I draw to a close, I, I want to say two different things. I know that the end of Matthew chapter 7 can terrify genuine believers. I know Matthew chapter 7, that, that thought that there are some people who think they're okay who are going to be pushed out at the end. I know that's the kind of thing that can terrify genuine Christians and they kind of feel insecure about their relationship with God. And maybe the way I've preached it this morning hasn't helped. I want to say this to you. If you're here this morning and you are saying, Lord Jesus, I recognize that you have authority over my life. I recognize that you have the right to tell me how I should live. And Lord, I do want to live that out. I, I do want to try and live that out. Lord, you know sometimes I mess up. You know sometimes I fall. You know sometimes I have questions and doubts. Lord, you know that. But as I do that, I go back and confess my sin and I ask for strength to start again. Can I say, if what I've just described is you, that seems to me to be living in line with the Sermon on the Mount. That seems to me to be building your house on a rock. And actually, if that is the case, in as much as we know ourselves, seems to me that is describing the one who is building on a foundation, who can face the prospect of judgment, feeling secure. And if that's you, I want you to feel secure. Yet yeah, you're wanting to live for Jesus. Yes, you fall short, but deep down you do want to live for Jesus. That's building your house on a rock. And yet, I, if I'm going to be faithful to this passage, I've got to end with another group. 
I, I have to be honest, I can't remember a sermon that has weighed more heavily in me as I've prepared it. Because I suspect the line of division does go through this room. And I suspect there are probably those who have heard Jesus' words. I suspect there probably are those who've enjoyed the social life of church. There probably are those who've done bits and pieces of ministry within the church. And yet you've never quite got to the point of saying, Jesus, you've got the right to tell me how to live. You've never quite got to the point of saying, actually, the ambition of my life is to put Jesus' teaching into practice. And actually, probably there isn't a regular sense of, Lord, forgive me my sin, help me to live differently. And I want to be clear as I close. Can I honest, this morning, I really don't care how many years you spent in the church. I really don't care how much you enjoy the social life of church. I really don't care whether you enjoy singing songs. I really don't care, frankly, actually this morning, how well you know your Bible. If you're not committed to putting the teaching of Jesus into practice, you're in trouble. Because that's what Jesus says. And you probably know it. I don't know about you, when those times when I wander from the Lord, it, it just introduces into my own heart a slight sense of uncertainty about my relationship with God. And I want to say, if actually you're here this morning and actually you know there are areas of life where you're displeasing God and you're not really doing anything about it and it leaves you feeling insecure, I need to plead with you, the way to get back to feeling secure is to live out Jesus' teaching and to put that into practice. You see, this morning is a really good morning to do business with Jesus. Because the one in the Sermon on the Mount who claims to have all authority is the one a few chapters later who will say, come to me. Come to me. Come and do business with me. And so my plea is this. If this morning is just convicted, won't you talk to him? He's saying, come to me, come and talk to Jesus. Tell him about the sins you're committing. Tell him about the ways you're not putting his teaching into practice. Tell him. And as you tell him, won't you pray, maybe in a way you've not done before, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me my sin. And then say, Lord, I want to live differently. And I know that's going to involve change, and maybe those changes will be painful. But Lord, to the best of my ability, I want to live differently. Won't you come and help me? This morning is a really good morning to do business with Jesus. And maybe it will be useful actually to get others to help you with that as well. But my simple plea is this. Don't think that Jesus is just offering suggestions or ideas for you to vaguely think about in your life. It's way more authoritative than that. Because he's the one we stand before one day. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One day all human hearts will be asking, what will he do with me? That's reality.
let's pray, shall we? Just a moment of quiet. Lord Jesus is here by his spirit. This morning is a really good morning to do business with him. I wonder what you want to say to him. Lord, we bow in your presence. The one who has all authority in heaven on earth, the one who has all authority over our lives. Lord, I so want to pray at the moment that you would, you would be doing the right work in our hearts. Lord, for those of us who really do know you, yes, we fall short, but Lord, I pray that actually you would be deepening our sense of assurance. But Lord, it might well be that for some of us this is rightly sobering. Because actually we aren't taking your words as seriously as we should. And Lord, for any of us, myself included, Lord, please, if that's the case, won't you convict us? And won't you help us to do serious business with you, we ask. So that we will be able to stand confidently on that day, we pray. For your name's sake. Amen.